This episode is brought to you by Chapman University. From climate science to patient safety, genomics to drug design, Chapman University data scientists are turning massive information sets into life-changing impact. The future is unfolding in Chapman's Schmidt College of Science and Technology. Here, masters and PhD students join in cutting-edge research as they prepare to take the next big leap in their professional journey. To learn more about the innovative tools and collaborative approach that distinguish the Chapman program in computational and data sciences, visit chapman.edu data science. That's chapman.edu slash data science. All right, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco. I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. So grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. In this episode, let's speak about backhand systems and backhand technologies. This is one of the most fascinating topics that uh, I've been involved uh, for the last 10 years or more. It is so important to uh, understand what are the backend technologies out there because they really define a lot about your business, a lot about your your stack and uh, a lot about the costs that uh, that particular solution will have for that specific use case. And so in uh, this episode, I would like to cover, hopefully in a decent way, uh, probably the three most uh, used and uh, well-known uh, backend technologies that is REST, gRPC and GraphQL. So probably REST is uh, one of the most, let's say, preferred or common microservices architectures today. And uh, the REST paradigm essentially consists of um, having uh, so-called stateless requests, uh, which means that we have a client and a server. The client provide uh, a request to the server. The server uh, process that request and uh, eventually provides a response to the client in a very structured way. And uh, when you think about REST APIs, uh, most of the time you are thinking about you know the the API uh, in the most traditional uh, sense of the word. Um, and so you have an endpoint, you have the type of the request that you are performing. It can be a GET, it can be a POST, it can be a PUT, a DEL. Probably you are already familiar with this terminology. Um, then you have a payload. In the payload, you basically specify uh, usually the data that you want the client to send to the server. Uh, and then you have a response. And most of the time you have seen these responses coming from the server in a JSON format. Right, uh, and so that JSON will be consumed by uh, a client, whatever it is. It can be a web browser, it can be a mobile app, it can be a a curl command line or whatever. You will just consume that response in as a JSON, right? And so we have seen this working, you know, very nicely in in several uh, domains and several uh, use cases. Uh, but there are situations in which probably REST is not ideal. Um, and I would like to give an example. I think about a machine learning model that is in production and is being 
um, exposed via an API, right? So someone trains the model, and then there is the engineer who puts this model in production, puts it behind an API, and uh, that API is generating endpoints, for example, slash predict, right? And in the predict is a, there is a post request where in the post you essentially put the data that you would like uh, the prediction for. So this data will feed the model in the back end and, uh, and the, the, the API glue code essentially will, uh, will pack the prediction into a JSON and provide the JSON as a response. This works as long as, uh, let's say, many assumptions are, are holding, for example, the fact that probably the model is not taking too long to perform that prediction, uh, or the case uh, in which the data that you are sending from the client via the payload is not that large, right? Because otherwise um, you are uh, packing uh, a lot of data in the request, and, uh, and as you can understand, you know, it might not succeed. Plus, there is a, a huge amount of data that is actually moving back and forth, uh, and you definitely would like to avoid that. So there are situations in which, uh, of course, the REST API would still work in the scenario that I just explained, but uh, I'm telling you, there might be much better solutions to this very use case. And this very use case is probably one of the most common ones when it comes to uh, putting machine learning model in production environments, but not only in production environments, also behind APIs. So you would like the, to serve the model, to expose the model via an API endpoint or a number of those. So what is good of REST? Well, REST is easy to understand um, there is a lot of web infrastructure that is has been built on top of HTTP. We have a lot of tools that uh, are currently used for um, debugging, testing, inspecting, modifying uh, existing APIs or, or APIs under development. Uh, think about, uh, you know, Postman and call requests. It's very easy to, in fact, debug an API. Um, and reason for which there are a lot of tools that are very, very mature uh, now. Um, there are also a lot of frameworks in uh, pretty much every language, every programming language you might think of um, in order to create REST APIs. And uh, last but not least, there is a very uh, standardized way of defining status codes, the so-called HTTP status code. So if something goes wrong, um, or if something's not found, you have a 404 status code. If something is successfully uh, accomplished, you have a 200 uh, status code, 201, and so on and so forth. So you have a very well-defined way of signaling uh, the status of that request uh, if it failed, if there is a, 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 a resource that cannot be uh, accessed, uh, if you don't have enough, enough permissions, if the server is down, etc., etc. Uh, so you have a lot of support uh, from browsers, a lot of support from the protocol perspective, which makes REST easy. Now, the use case that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the one in which you would like to provide a prediction from a model uh, and serve such a model, put these models uh, behind, behind an API, um, there are some scenarios there that for which REST APIs are probably not ideal. And one in particular is, for example, the fact that uh, the microservice that is providing the prediction, and so it's running actually the model, uh, might be calling other microservices or might be calling uh, some other node internal 
to the to, you know to your backend system, right? And so you might have multiple microservices behind the API endpoint that are calling each other. Well, in these cases, um, using a REST API even internally would be, I'm not saying impossible, but definitely not a good thing to have. Another issue and another limitation of the REST API or the REST technology consists in uh, supporting streaming. Uh, streaming is quite difficult and it's kind of impossible in most of the languages that uh, you can provide, uh, you can develop a REST API in. Not only that, duplex streaming is not possible. That's a limitation of the protocol on top of which REST is running, which is HTTP. So, uh, you know, these are all scenarios in which probably another technology might be better advised for, for these particular use cases, which is gRPC. Now, gRPC has been uh, invented at Google. Well, in fact, it is developed by Google, supported by Google, but in fact comes from way before. RPC stands for Remote Procedure Call, uh, and it's something that, if I'm not wrong, comes from the 70s or early 80s. Hey folks, if building software is your passion, you'll have ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast. It's a podcast for techies by techies. Their team of experienced technologists take a deep dive into a tech topic that's piqued their interest. It could be how machine learning is being used in astrophysics or maybe how to succeed at continuous delivery. They're always coming across fascinating ways technology is advancing and love to share what they learn. Whatever the topic, the discussions are always lively, informative and opinionated. The team of co-hosts are experienced technologists from across ThoughtWorks and include ThoughtWorks CTO Dr. Rebecca Parsons and renowned writer and speaker Neil Ford. Each episode, the podcast features a guest or two to talk about their particular passion and areas of expertise. Past guests have included eminent technologists like Martin Fowler, Mark Richards, Dana Boyd, and many others. If you like this show, I think you should give ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast a try. To find out more, just search for ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And of course, make sure you subscribe. The idea of gRPC is actually quite different, but the benefits of having a gRPC in place are, are really, really interesting. For example, performance and data security is something in which gRPC protocols uh, excel. Uh, the cost uh, in terms of uh, amount of data that you're transferring from a client to a server is much, much less. Right. Unfortunately, there are many limitations and more you know, additional complications in the development of a gRPC with respect to a REST due to the fact that gRPC is probably you know, newer with respect to REST. There are less tools and also less standardization with respect to the protocol uh, you know, compared to a REST equivalent. Another limitation is that gRPC is not human readable data. So uh, I, will, I will explain in a minute. It's basically a binary format and uh, more on that later. Um, not only, there is no way to consume a gRPC from a web browser, uh, obviously, um, being binary. Um, there is no support from, for, for example, JavaScript. And of course, there is a bit more, uh, let's say, effort that is required to implement a, an equivalent gRPC service um, that, you know, equivalent to a REST functionality. So gRPC is based on something called protobuf or Google protobuf or proto, 
which is a mechanism for serializing structured data. So before we get there, let me explain uh, what is the typical, you know, a simple client-server architecture with gRPC. Well, we have a client. In the client, we have some, you know, client routines. And uh, below that, we have a client stub. And below that, we have an RPC runtime library in the client. Now, what happens is that when a client makes a request to a gRPC server, this request passes through the client stub the RPC runtime library. The RPC runtime library essentially takes all the parameters of this request and packs them. The jargon is it marshals all these uh, arguments, all these parameters, and then it sends them through the network. These arguments, these parameters will travel the network and will get to the RPC runtime library of the server. They will pass through the server stub. The server stub will decode these parameters and will execute in the server, you know, via the server routines, providing that functionality, so providing that operation, that operation is performed in the server, and then all the response is communicated back to the client via the same route in the same fashion. So this is how RPC work. Now, the the key point of uh, of RPC is that it is, you know, these requests and these parameters that are sent back and forth parameters and responses that are sent from client to server and from server to client, these are machine readable, right? These are not human readable. And so machine readable means that they are binary. And so this protobuf can be used to exchange these messages between services and of course not between browsers because protos are binary, okay? Now, what makes it, this thing binary is the fact that the service is defined by a language and it's actually compiled. So you have the so-called protofile that defines the service and the messages that have to be exchanged for uh, this particular service. And then you literally compile this file in order to generate client and server code. This reminds a bit the so-called WSDL, which stands for Web Services Description Language. It was a, um, a description language for services, and it was XML-based. Um, now, this reminds me of that because, you know, the fact that you specify a service via a, a particular language, which is the proto-language, and then you compile that service description. It's not new. It has happened already in the history of computer science, and now we are seeing this again. Uh, but of course, uh, it is much more efficient because when you let a machine compile uh, the type of message and uh, uh, you let the machine serialize or deserialize the data that you're sending back and forth uh, in a binary format, well, binary is unbeatable, right? Uh, with respect to a text or a JSON, uh, of course, it is unbeatable in terms of efficiency. It kind of sucks in terms of readability uh, because, of course, if you want to debug these things, uh, well, good luck with that. <laughs> so to recap, Creating a server and a client with gRPC is actually quite simple. And, and these are the steps. You create a service definition and the payload structure in a file, which is called protofile, uh, which stands for protocol buffer file. Then you generate the gRPC code from the protofile, simply compiling it using a compiler, a proto-C, proto-compiler. And then you implement the server in whatever language of your choice. By the way, Rust uh, also 
is supported and uh, tonic is uh, a crate that you probably is probably one of the best shot when it comes to implementing grpc servers in rust and um, then you create a client that invokes the service via the the stub as i explained before and then you simply run the server first and the clients later so this is these are the steps that you usually perform when you want to uh, implement something that is grpc based so what do you get home well you get definitely uh, streaming duplex streaming so this allows client side and service streaming simultaneously uh, due to the fact that the protocol on top of which grpc works which is http2 provides this uh, functionality and feature uh, it's also a, a protocol that is multiplexed right uh, so on the single connection you can uh, provide double communication the code the client code as i explained is author generated so with proto c you can relatively easily generate the client code and the server code uh, it is super optimized uh, again when it comes to binary formats that's the best shot you can have in uh, in computer science um, but not only that you are less prone to errors because once you have a service that is defined by a a language in this case the proto language um, you know you you let the compiler generate the code that will perform will execute exactly that service and exactly those payloads and message structure so you cannot make make mistakes there you know these are very important points now the pain points is again that there is no support for web browsers there are no endpoints that you can test by you know the way you do that in a rest api you know, many times it happens. Okay, I have a, a test engineer. It will, I will provide my Postman description of the API, and I let testers test my API. Well, that's no longer possible with gRPC, right? So, when would you use these things? Well, in the example that I uh, I gave at the beginning of the episode, I said, okay, imagine you have a model that is running on a node on, let's say, on your backend infrastructure. Uh, of course, the model requires data. Data are sitting in the database or other data, for example, the input data provided by the request, right? Let's say you, you want to classify an image. You provide the image in the request as a, a, a vector of bytes. Then you hit the endpoint predict. And then what happens is that the API glue code essentially will take that request, will unpack it into a, a matrix that the model can understand and it will perform that you know, inference from the model in, on another node because that's where the model is sitting, right? Let's say that the model is a massive neural network that of course cannot, cannot stay uh, on the same machine where that is serving the requests online. Uh, so it's running somewhere else. Not only that, this node also requires to load the model parameters uh, from a database or from an S3 bucket or whatever. So as you can see, there is a lot of complexity that we are hiding just you know, behind one endpoint. Now, what happens is that if you start using these things with REST, you are not going to perform as good as you would perform if you had a gRPC in the backend, because you would use gRPC, you know, you would still use REST for you know, providing that endpoint to the public, but behind that, 
you might be using a gRPC in order to call nodes internally and so different microservices, as I said, a model parameter service, a database service, uh, the, the node that is actually performing the, the neural network in inference mode and so on and so forth. So all these, let's say three microservices are communicating with each other via gRPC and they are doing that in a very optimized fashion, right? So this is what I envision uh, REST versus gRPC. To be honest with you, there is no better solution. There is just, you know, this, it's like comparing apples and pears. Like it, it's not comparable in my opinion. Uh, the, the, the case in which you use a REST is probably not the case in which you use a gRPC. So I've seen this happening uh, several times that people convert their API technologies just because a new technology comes out or a new technology becomes more trendy and and so people start you know considering uh, to switch their technologies well that's kind of wrong and what is right is uh, sitting down and thinking okay where's my bottleneck what if my microservice is talking to another microservice uh, because that's not the case all the time right and when it is yes grpc is probably the most indicated technology that you might be using in the back end the third and last technology I would like to discuss is definitely GraphQL. So GraphQL is a technology that has been discussed several times online now. Um, it has been in, in created at Facebook, uh, I think in 2012. So it's not really new. It was released only three years after, uh, I think, 2015. So it's already six years that is around. And uh, only now probably people are noticing that, how oh, there is a new technology, this GraphQL thing. <laughs> Let's see what, what is that about. Well, GraphQL is, in fact, a, um, a way to describe how to ask for data. right? And it's usually um, used to load data from a server to a client. Now, the three top features that I think um, distinguish GraphQL from the rest is that it lets the client specify what data is needed. It uses a type system to describe such data. And it's also very important for kind of strongly typing things. And it makes it much easier to aggregate data from multiple sources. So most of the time in a REST request, when you ask for a particular resource, you know, the RESTful API essentially is uh, uh, decoding that request and then serving it the response fully, right? There is no way that you can, let's say, select the type of data or the data or the subset of the data that you would like to, uh, to, to return to the client. This is something that you can do with the GraphQL technology. So the user is able to make a single call to fetch the uh, information that they want to, to, to fetch rather than to construct several REST requests to fetch the same information. So usually when you have to do this via REST API, you have to perform multiple requests. Many times performing multiple requests is prohibitive. Think about a mobile device that has to uh, do multiple requests or you have to dispatch these requests internally to your, uh, you know, into your backend, right? That's that's usually what what engineers do in order to keep the let's say front end API as simple as possible. They move these multiple requests in the back end. It's legit, of course, but it's time consuming. It's not performing. A GraphQL approach would be much more uh, indicated there. 
another important point of GraphQL is that it helps defining a data shape. So the first thing you notice when you are in front of a GraphQL query is that the query usually mirrors the response. And so it makes it extremely easy to predict what type of data, what shape of the data returned from that query will be, because the, the data type is defined already in the query. This also comes from the fact that it is a technology that is based on the concept of strongly typed. Okay, so each level of a GraphQL query corresponds to a particular type, and each type describes a set of available fields for the data. And so this is very similar to what happens with SQL, uh, allows GraphQL to provide, um, let's say, error messages even before running that query. So there is this, you know, control over the type of data that you're requesting and the type of data that you will be receiving. So that's it for today. I hope I made a decent job explaining a very high level, some of the most common and important technologies, backend technologies to know as a data scientist and as a data engineer, for sure. Also, don't forget to uh, drop by our official channel on the Discord. Uh, you will find the link in the show notes of this episode or on uh, datascienceatome.com, the official website. Thanks again for listening and uh, I'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.